This morning, I'd like to explore together with you the passage from Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus. Yes, the dreaded submission passage. So uh, I hope that won't just plunge you into despair or cynicism. Um, Paul meant this passage actually quite the opposite to be inspiring and joyful. But because we're human and because we're in human institutions, uh, we're very familiar with the challenges. However, I wanted to focus today on Paul's letter to the church in Ephesus because the subjects that he addresses today in this reading touch on matters of great importance and controversy today. I'm not going to plunge into those controversial matters, um, number one, because uh, I'm not sure that was the intent of Paul, but two, it's not wise to do that, stepping into a pastor's pulpit who's not here to, uh, to pick up the pieces. <laughs> so um, I am not intending to cause controversy here today, but to encourage us with Paul's message because it is very deeply encouraging and hopeful. Obviously, in our culture, as in Paul's, there was con confusion around just about every dimension of human relationships with gender, sexuality, domestic life, to Paul's point about marriage, for example. And his comments in Masters and Slaves touches our country's painful heritage of American slavery, uh, which would complicate our reading of this text. So it's vitally important for our mission as a church to gain clarity and wisdom because Paul says very clearly, be wise. And so we, we don't want to move around the text there's great and important wisdom in it for us, which will bless us personally as we as individuals align with God's intent, but also as our, as our community together bears witness to those around us. Because in Paul's description of the household, not only in Ephesians but elsewhere in his letters, there's a missional intent that as we live out our lives aligned with God's purpose, it speaks to those around us in our culture. So in this uh, letter to the Ephesians, Paul emphasizes that what distinguishes, distinguishes a Christian approach to any human relationship, what distinguishes it is the personal relationship that a Christian has with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That relationship is primary, and it shapes all the other relationships that we have. That's my main point this morning. Without that personal relationship, all of the application that Paul brings is incomprehensible. And in fact, uh, the four previous chapters of the letter to the church in Ephesus really are meant to build up that relationship. It's one of the most compact and powerful of Paul's letters. If you haven't read it, I commend it to you. It's the most precious words that you'll find about the nature, quality, and impact of a personal and living relationship with Jesus. Jesus is the source and, and sustainer of authentic love and of true identity. Paul says that in love, 
He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. Adoption. Uh, We just kind of skip over the word, but it's profoundly powerful to think that we actually belong as children in God's family. Sons here is emphasized simply because in that culture, sons were heirs. So whether you're a male or a female, you're a son in that respect. You're an heir of the riches of this relationship with God. The impact of it, Paul describes as obtaining this inheritance, which is a new self. Paul's expression, not mine. A new self created after the likeness of God. You are a child in his family, and you have a new self after the image and likeness of God himself. I mean, we just are going to outstrip language if we move past the power and impact of that statement. And Paul wants to start the letter by building up the body of Messiah with this knowledge before he plunges into the impact of it in our relationships. So the first thing I want to emphasize is that that is that Jesus is the source and sustainer of authentic love and true identity. Second of all, he's the one who keeps the bigger picture of our destiny in the new world before us. Okay, that's an important quality here because Paul keeps alluding to that in the context of the household relationships that we'll address in just a minute. In other words, when we look at each other, we not only see each other as our true selves in Christ, but we also see what we're becoming So in our vision, in our heart's eye, so to speak, we're seeing each other today, but also in the context of what will be in the new world. We're going somewhere. Every relationship and every quality of our life here is transitional. It will yield to the consummation of those things in a new world. And each of us must know that about ourselves And we must also know that about the people with whom we relate. So there's a present dynamic of our quality of life with Jesus in our new self. And there's also a future quality of how we and this world are heading somewhere. That's the basis and framework for Paul's description of has come to be called the household code. I don't know who made that. Um, I know Luther had some German phrase for it, and I can't remember it off the top of my tip. I don't know if he made that up, or but, but now it's called the household code. So you can Google household code, code, and you'll get all the passages online. That's what uh, this uh, framework is, and it's going to talk about marriage, child-rearing, and bond service. Paul... Sorry, sounds loud to me in here. I don't know what it's like out there. Paul begins our passage with a call to wisdom. And I want to emphasize it because it really doesn't come across as being very optional. Paul's being exhortational. He's saying to us in the imperative case, be wise. Wisdom, to be clear in the way that Paul is using it, is grounded in revelation, 
not in general experience. He's not saying be wise by having lived a long time. He's saying be wise in the revelation of Jesus Christ. That's a Holy Spirit wisdom. So it's clear that our culture is not a source of wisdom any more than the Greco-Roman culture was a source of wisdom to Paul's community. It cannot be a source of wisdom. Our cultures can be a source of knowledge. Our cultures can teach us about God's world. We do gain an experience as we live, or we can. But that's not what Paul's talking about. He's talking about being wise in the revelation that is not sourced in this world. Often, they're at odds. And so the admonition is repetitive, and it's strong, and it's worth repeating. Chapter 5, verse 17, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. That's our mission. Paul shows that wisdom energizes the human relationships. Why? Because it opens human relationships up fully to the presence of God, which is the source of wisdom. Paul says, be filled with the Holy Spirit, the source of wisdom. Address one another in psalms, making melody to God in your heart, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So, this word that he brings into the discussion here, submission, the dreaded word, is disclosed to us in the relationship of Jesus Christ, not in any other context. If you strip the word submission out of the revelation of Jesus Christ, you've mangled it, and you've distorted it, and you've made it an abusive term. So as we move into this domestic application, in Paul's context, a household often included doulos in Greek, most commonly translated slave. And many translations hold to that in all of its shock value. The ESV translation, the English Standard Version we're using, uses bondservant, which is also appropriate. And in fact, you'll find that there's a note in the ESV that refers you to the preface of the translators that, that say that this word slavery, because of its nuance, uh, does require some attention. So slave or bondservant, I'll come back to that in a little while. But um, that's why they're included, because many households did have bondservants. The majority of people in Rome at that time actually were either slaves or bondservants at some time. Most people were not free. So I want you to think about it. We'll come back to this again. But, you know, the church in Ephesus is probably no bigger than we are here. Okay, so imagine we're meeting in a home, and because we're meeting in a home, we are meeting in a domestic environment. So Paul's sermon is being delivered in a house, and in that house are men and women and children and bondservants, all hearing the same thing said to the same people. Pretty riveting when you think about it. Really, the people who are sweating bullets here are probably the husbands, fathers, and masters. Uh, because they're being addressed in public before the ones with whom, over whom they have authority of some sort. So I want to uh, set us up here uh, with these three groups. We have some striking rhetorical patterns uh, to pay attention to. First of all, those who are to submit are addressed first. Okay? Submit, obey, obey. Um, those who wield the authority are addressed second. 
and they too have responsibilities that, as we shall see, draw them more closely into the sphere of those who are submissive than they would have ever imagined beforehand. So the, re the rhetorical power gains momentum as the speech moves towards husbands, fathers, and masters. Paul's bringing pressure to bear on those who have uh, this kind of perception of authority. Now, wives, children, and bondservants are to submit and obey in the Lord. Now, those are not just fancy religious terms. He's not just sprinkling uh, his speech with Christianese. Okay, we'll come back to this again. The sentiment of submission would not have been unsurprising, all right? Of course these kinds of people are to submit and obey. But introducing into the relationship the presence of the one to whom everyone submits, that is radical. That's different. That's not the same. And so this phrase, in the Lord, is actually the key point and purpose of this passage, not just a little Christian language sprinkled in. And so, lastly, in each case, rhetorically speaking, the relationship is drawn into this higher framework that I was talking about. Some of you may be familiar with the word eschatological. It's a fancy word. I don't like to use too many fancy words, but because it's one word <laughs> rather than three, it might be helpful. Eschatological means future state, end time, new world, everything that's coming. So I can either say all that or I can use the word eschatological if you can bear with me. I won't use that word a lot, but that's what it's referring to. It's this eschatological framework that is hovering in the background or even in the foreground, and that separates it from any inference to common cultural understandings. So when Paul's using these terms, he's not using Greco-Roman or modern American or any other culture's framework. He's using a very distinct revelatory framework of Christ as Lord, not anybody else. I'll spend most of my time this morning on wives and husbands because Paul does, and because there is no way one sermon can begin to do justice to the content of this passage. And I won't be getting into great detail here. I want us to hold some of the, some of the big picture in mind here as we move through it. But I'll be straightforward. Wives are to submit to their husbands as the head of the marriage, as to the Lord. Wives are to submit to their husbands, the head. A um, lot of discussion about what that means, as you can imagine. Um, head has the uh, kind of the um, perception or, or idea of being authoritative, an authority. Head can also mean source. Um, and there's a lot of debate today about whether one of those is particularly in mind with Paul. Um, the idea of, of head being source has to do with patronage culture in the Greco-Roman world where uh, patrons are often uh, hold resources that are distributed to client relationships. And the Greco-Roman world was very steeped into this kind of patronage-client relationship. And it could be that Paul is referring to the head as the one who has the resources for the family. Um, I think these are probably overlapping ideas. Head means an authoritative resourcing person. And wives are to submit to their husbands. 
Husbands, likewise, are to love their wives on two cases, as Christ loves the church and as they love their own bodies. Paul seems to be very interested in this because he goes on at length about the impact of this idea on husbands. Paul does not say how wives are to submit. To be very clear, there's no indication here of stereotypes or roles. This is not about, this is not about stereotyping. It's about a rightly ordered relationship and how that aligns with and expresses much deeper realities about God's nature. So if you haven't picked it up already, marriages are portals of God's grace. They're pictures of his character. They're symbols, Paul will say, of Christ and his church. Marriages by nature bear an image of God that functions as a witness in the world. So, both the wife and the husband are obligated to see each other within the context of this bigger purpose. That's our call as spouses. Each is to see in their marriage a picture of Jesus and his bride as moving towards fullness and completion and to submit their unique purpose to that. So in the same way that Christ is preparing his church for fruition, so marriages are preparing wives and husbands to reach that kind of consummation. And our vocation as husbands and wives is to submit to that. Wives, in their role or in their, uh, their being in the marriage, are the symbol of the church. They are receiving the self-sacrificing, beautifying, cherishing, loyal action of the husband. Husbands are the symbol of Christ who supports, sustains, upholds, and bears the responsibility for the flourishing of his bride within the context of Christ's will for her. So the husband is given two particular admonitions. One is to conform to the example of Christ and to conform to the Old Testament admonition to love his neighbor as himself, as his own body, which is now united with his wives. So in the first admonition, in, in verses 25 and 26, we see that Christ has loved his church and given himself up for it. That is the primary foundation of the husband's actions. He may not move outside the boundaries of gracious self-sacrifice. Within that gracious self-sacrifice, Paul wants to emphasize the particular ministry of Christ to his church. Christ sanctified and cleansed the church by water and the word in order to present her to himself holy and unblemished. That's the ministry of Christ to its church and by analogy, the ministry of a husband to a wife. Water here is an allusion to a bridal bath. It's not a baptismal allusion. It's a bridal bath allusion, which you can find described, for example, in Ezekiel 16 as a metaphor for the relationship between God and Israel. Here's a couple of quotes from Ezekiel 16 that God 
expresses about his cleansing bath in preparation for his bride, Israel. I made my vow to you and entered into a covenant with you, and you became mine. Then I bathed you with water and washed you and anointed you with oil, and you grew exceedingly beautiful. Now this metaphor is so powerful because at the time of Ezekiel's writing, Israel was suffering at the hands of her, of her enemies due to Israel's sinfulness. So God, as the bridegroom, covers Israel's shame. He says, I spread the corner of my garment over you and covered your nakedness. Also, God, as bridegroom, cleanses her from her past. I washed off your blood from you. Now, of course, that's what God as Savior can do for Israel. Husbands are, by analogy, participating in the fruition of his wife's um, coming to her sense of identity in Christ. So the bridal bath in, relation for, uh, in, in terms of God's relation to Israel discloses really the most powerful intimate expression of God's saving grace. The husband is meant to align with that. The word here, uh, cleansing by the word, Paul especially here referencing the gospel, which in this letter describes the whole continuum of our, nation, our initiation into God's family, but also the process of fruition in full completion with the union with, with Christ, which he says uh, we're to be the holy temple in the Lord. So you can see that Paul here is dealing with the word gospel as a point in time, but also its movement till consummation. So let me just kind of summarize all that. The husband, in being like Christ, is beautifying her and aligning with the movement of Christ within her to bring her to completion and in so doing, bringing his own self to completion. Notice, by the way, how much of this Christ-like love, particularly in Paul's context, is women's work. These attributes are not the sort of leadership that men would have inherited from their culture. Paul's talking about nurturing, cleansing, adorning, cherishing, presenting. This kind of thing that mamas do for their babies. Of course, some men have been known to do this for their cars or boats, perhaps, but... I don't think Paul had that in mind. Paul says, this is actually God's nature, and we're to imitate it. Paul goes even further with the second admonition, and he says, men are to love their, their wives as themselves. You can hear a little bit of the great commandment in there, to love our neighbors as ourselves. Jesus picks this up and said, we're to love our enemies as ourselves. But the fullness of this great commandment is expressed most powerfully in marriage because there the two shall become one flesh. So therefore, the husband's actually loving, in a, in a certain way, his own self by loving his wife. They're so intimately tied together. And Paul says this is a profound mystery. Husbands and wives 
are each submissive in that sense to the direction of Christ and each is submissive to the other within the context of their God-given charge. So the wife will hold the husband accountable to his identity and the husband will hold the wife accountable to hers. So in the interest of time, I want to draw some of this to conclusion in this portion. So I'm going to skip over the portion of fathers and children, as important as that is, except to point out that there, too, is this eschatological framework, because Paul is talking about the promise, and you can just look in your Bibles to see how that's the case. I do want to very briefly just create some kind of clarity around this issue of bond servants and masters. Um, there are great cultural differences between slaves then and in American history. American history, slavery is somewhat distinct. In Greco-Roman culture, sla slavery or bond service was not always permanent. It was not especially racial, and it was certainly not suffused with the misappropriation of scripture as it was here. Note, for example, that women could be and would be masters in this context, and it was very likely in the house church that women were masters of the bond servants in the context of this servant, ser, uh, sermon. Further, Paul does not have in mind here, obviously, forms of abusive slavery such as trafficking, though bond service, for sure, in the Greco-Roman culture had all sorts of problems, um, as Paul acknowledges. So it's not, I'm not trying to cleanse the idea. I'm just making some distinctions. Um, and again, in the setting of this house church, everyone was hearing this together. Um, similar to marriage, what is most radical is the equalizing of God's presence as the primary master before whom all bond servants and all masters sit. We're all bond servants to the Lord. And he is preparing a future where we will be fully liberated as subjects in God's reign. So again, I'm not trying to cleanse the idea of bond service. I'm just trying to draw some distinctions. There are similarities, um, but I just want to draw attention to that. Um, in all three of these circumstances, marriage, child rearing, and in bond service, there is both differentiation and equalizing. In other words, there is a sense in which we're the same. And there is a sense in which we're different. And it's important to know which is which. We are all the church, even husbands. So in that sense, the analogy isn't meant to say that husbands are somehow not the bride of Christ. Thus, even husbands will experience at the hands of Christ the very actions that they will demonstrate to their wives. That sense, husbands must receive. Fathers are also sons. Masters are also slaves. And slaves are also free. We are all submissive to Christ in that sense. And we are all submissive to each other in that sense as we hold each other accountable to our vocation. But we are different. We are different because we are created with specific bodies. That would be a whole sermon in itself. But I want to emphasize 
that we are created with specific bodies, God-given, and in particular social circumstances. Some of our circumstances will never change, such as our status before God and our identity with him, that will not change. We will always be members of his body for eternity. But some of our circumstances will change. There will be no marriage in heaven, which for some of us is really bad news and for some of us probably not so bad. There will be no slavery and mastery of this sort in heaven, although we will all be bending the knee to the Lord. There is no role or identity in short, that we have that is isolated from God's experience. Whatever role or circumstance we find ourselves in, we will find God with us, especially because of the incarnation. God became flesh and he suffered vicariously on behalf of Israel and the church. In some mysterious way, God the Son knows what it's like to be in the posture of bride. Jesus is both the head of the church, and yet the church is also his body. Distinct, and yet certainly the head of the body knows the way that the members of the body feel. Jesus, very powerfully, is both Lord and slave. Philippians chapter 2. He did not consider equality with God to be something to keep, but he gave up that estate for a much lowlier one and became a servant, even uh, to death on the cross. God in his triune nature is both lover and beloved. The father loves the son the Son receives the love of the Father. The Son loves the Father, and the Father receives the love of the Son. God, in that sense, is both Father and Son. In short, I think at times people, particularly, I, I would assume, well, I've heard my um, female colleagues express this, that there's a can be a sense of isolation, that a woman doesn't have some kind of connection with God because they're not gendered uh, like the son and therefore cannot be husband, and that this analogy starts to break down. But please keep in mind that that's not the case. There is no circumstance or role in life that God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit have not entered into fully. And therefore, there is no status that is isolated from the full presence of Christ, the Lord and the King, that is from his reign, which is liberating, empowering, and ennobling. Therefore, we do not ever, ever lose our identity when we submit to our distinct vocation. Rather, we recover it. There is a sense in which we lose our identity in Christ. That's a different idea, and I don't want to introduce confusion here. I just want to say it very clearly that Paul says with no holds barred, with no reservations, that in Christ we are new creations. We have every attribute of a full and complete sense of identity. And there is no risk 
to our sense of identity when we enter fully into the vocation that God has given us as men and women, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as members of, what can I, how can I put it, of power structures. I understand how Paul's teaching here may be hard for many of us. Domestic life has wounded many of us here today and many of those around us. And, of course, many of us are either unmarried or have no children. None of us in our context are slaveholders or being held slaves in this respect. Again, which is not to deny injustice or the impact of the legacy of American slavery. I'm not trying to diminish that. I'm just saying that, technically speaking, we're not slaveholders, nor are we slaves. But we are all members of the body of Messiah. We are all located within domestic structures that affect our sense of identity and our sense of autonomy. We all have choices to make with respect to our essential relationships now and in the future. There are no perfect families. There are no perfect relationships. There are no perfect power structures. Paul is teaching them uh, teaching us, though, that all of them are relativized before the presence of God. All of them are open to his presence. All of them will yield to the transformation of the new world. All of them. And each of us has a part of something. Each of us is a part of something much bigger and has a part to play. And I'm closing now, so... At the heart of all of this is our encounter with Christ our Savior. Wives cannot submit to husbands as to the Lord if they do not know the Lord. Husbands cannot love their wives as Christ loved the church if they do not know Christ. Children cannot obey their parents in the Lord if they do not know him. Fathers cannot bring up their children in the Lord if they do not know him. Those with authority cannot wield it Though, nor those who are under authority receive it in the Lord if they don't know him. All that would be left without the Lord would be the distorted versions of family life and institutional dysfunction that have hurt many of us here today and those around us. Apart from Christ, sin reigns and all of its horrible consequences. But with Christ and through him, each of us becomes an agent of God's power to transform, to heal, to restore, and to move the enterprise in the direction of its future fullness. Whether we are married or single, whether we're parents or not, we are all part of God's family and share her blessing and her mission. If you have not met Christ personally, you can. We come to him by putting our trust in his power to save us, to forgive us our sins, to spread his garment over us, to bring him into his family and into his plan. He died on the cross and rose again to establish that personal relationship with you if you put your trust in him. And for those of us who have struggled within the context of our family lives to understand rightly ordered relationships or who have experienced abuse or made bad mistakes or have just had sadness and just find 
Paul's preaching hard, I encourage you to ask him for help in the areas of your struggle. It is a process. It's a journey. But God is the perfect father. He's the perfect spouse. He's the perfect son and savior. The Holy Spirit, the comforter, the empowering presence of God. Submission to him is what we were made for. In obedience to him, we find our true freedom and our power to serve other people. He's trustworthy. Would you pray with me? Lord Jesus, as we surrender to you as Lord of our lives, draw us closer to you. Show us where we may harbor resistance to your lordship and rejection of your will. Bring us into greater joy of the abundant life that you desire for us now and forever. Through your holy name, amen.